As a valued listener to this podcast, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the wealth of stuff available to subscribers. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. Back for a second week running in the lockdown pod today is Valerie Jameson. Val is Creative Director for New Scientist Events. Hi, Val. Hi, Rowan. Hi, Penny. On this week's show, we've got news of a mouse created with more human cells than ever before. We look into the use of robots and drones to enforce social distancing. We celebrate the return to Europe of Swifts. And we discuss the potential of seaweed to help in the fight against climate change. But first, we're going to hear about the epic attempt to find a new fundamental force of nature. Yeah, this is completely mind-boggling to me. It brings to mind Donald Rumsfeld, because we know there are four fundamental forces of nature, but I find it hard to even imagine a fifth. So it's an unknown unknown. Val, Val, help us out here. Yeah, so as you say, Rowan, there are four fundamental forces that describe how everything works, from black holes to radioactive decays to sounds coming out of your headphones. And there are two kinds of everyday forces, electromagnetism, which explains how light behaves and why atoms hold together, and gravity, which explains why apples fall onto physicists' heads when they're sitting under trees. Okay, yeah, okay, I've got those. Well, the other two operate at the subatomic level. They are the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. The strong one is responsible for the stability of the nucleus, and the weak one accounts for radioactive decay and the reactions that take place inside stars. Okay, so basically all of physics is made up of those forces. Yeah, so electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear force are described by quantum mechanics, and gravity is accounted for in Einstein's theory of relativity. Okay, so where's the but? But there's a lot we don't understand that doesn't fit in those theoretical frameworks. And when you have a mystery in physics, theorists often invent a new force or a new particle to explain it. There are plenty of things we don't understand in the cosmos, dark energy, dark matter, and inflation. And some physicists think that a new force might be the answer. Okay, but isn't that cheating? I mean, it's like you can't just make up a new force. Is is there some evidence pointing to it? Otherwise, it sounds like, you know, physicists are saying, oh, we can't make it all work, so let's just invent something to help us. Well, that's actually a very successful approach in physics. Um, Way back in the 1930s, Wolfgang Pauli noticed that energy and momentum weren't conserved in some radioactive decays. Now, it's a sacred principle in physics that energy and momentum are conserved. It's one of the first things you learn about in school physics. So Pauli came up with the idea that an invisible, massless particle called the neutrino was actually the thing that was carrying away the missing energy and momentum. And lo and behold, you know, 20 or so years later, neutrinos were discovered. Okay, that's starting to convince me. Well, this is the beauty of physics. In theoretical physics, often the mathematics predicts the existence of something. And this is how the Higgs boson was found. We thought it might be in a certain place and built an experiment to find it. Okay, so in our Donald Rumsfeld classification of physics, the Higgs was a known unknown. So what this means is that if we think there's a new force, then we can build an experiment to go and look for it. Is that right? Absolutely. All right, so to go back to why we might want a new force, 
it's because there are things that we only have hints of, like dark matter and dark energy, that we can't explain at all with regular physics. Yes, we know that there are huge amounts of the universe we can't describe, but we can just about infer its presence using our regular physics. Dark matter and dark energy make up 95% of the mass of the universe. The whole area is enigmatically described as the dark sector, and we know absolutely nothing about it. The dark sector. It's sounding very science fiction. Yeah, things do get a bit sci-fi at this point. The new force is called the chameleon force, with the idea being that its particle changes like a chameleon according to where it is. Near Earth, it would be heavier, wouldn't travel very far, and would be really hard to spot. And in the vast swathes of empty space between galaxies, it can be a lot lighter. This means that the particle could zip between galaxies and explain dark energy and dark matter. Okay. And is it possible to test this experimentally, given that we can't go out into the regions between galaxies? It is. And there's actually an experiment at Imperial College in London. It tries to recreate this idea that the chameleon force is very strong near the Earth in a miniature format. The Earth, in this case, is a sphere about the size of a marble and a cloud of atoms puffs towards it. And the chameleon force, if it's there, will nudge the atoms ever so slightly off course. Now, so far, the Imperial Group hasn't seen anything so far, but it's very early days for the experiment. But there are hints of something interesting going on when you look at certain other radioactive decays. If there is a new force, it could leave fingerprints behind in nuclear reactions, And some groups think they've seen something called a dark photon, but that needs verifying. A dark photon. Love that. Okay, so the end game for physicists is to make a theory of everything, isn't it? To unify all the forces into one monster theory. So it's adding a new force going to help with this. Well, it might seem a backward step, but the smart money is on adding new forces. Okay. I just want to ask as an aside, are physicists happy at the moment? Because sometimes I hear it said that there's a crisis in physics because they can't unify it with their theories. And, you know, there's this 95% of the universe that can't be explained. And then sometimes I've seen physicists saying, oh, what a time to be alive because there's so much to work on. So, so what's your take on this? Right, well, disclaimer here, I used to be a physicist. Uh, and I think the progress that's been made in recent years is absolutely incredible. Every discovery is raising new questions and ideas for sure. But that's not super exciting about it. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we have a story in the news this week that has already been written about in science fiction. Rowan. Yeah, did you see the robot dog patrolling in a park in Singapore? It's one of those Boston Dynamics dogs. They're, they're super agile, but they look really weird because they don't have a head. But in this park, they're running around reminding people to stay two metres apart to help promote social distancing. Did you guys see that? And what do you make of it? Were you creeped out? Because most people seem to think that it was only one step from here to an armed robot dog that would shoot you. I was a bit underwhelmed, actually. Um, The way it was just walking around with the recorded message reminding people to keep safe. It didn't seem quite as highly intelligent as, as maybe some people were making it out to be. I was absolutely fascinated by the video, just the progress that's been made. That was the thing that struck me about it, rather than, you know, killer robot dogs. Yeah, I I agree. I didn't find it that creepy. Uh, I think lots of people found it creepy. But what I thought was weird was that, you know, in the UK, at least, we're, we're in the country with the highest number of surveillance cameras per capita in Europe. So there's about one camera 
for every 10 people, which we completely accept. We accept the security benefits. Uh, we might not like the privacy implications. And if you look at China, it doesn't have as many cameras per capita as the UK, but the, the numbers there are going up all the time. And this year, it's predicted that there'll be between 400 million and 600 million cameras in China. And with the other information that China has on people, they can use AI and face recognition tied to the cameras and, and just track individuals throughout the day, throughout a city, and pretty much know everything about you. So when you think of it like that, I don't think it's a big deal to have a robot dog helping people keep safe from a virus. Yeah, I did wonder, to be honest, whether the dog is really actually that much help at doing that. So it is broadcasting this pre-recorded social distancing message. But that kind of thing's pretty easy to ignore. And, and, and people get kind of blind to or they stop hearing these messages after a while. To me, that felt like more of a distraction from the fact that the dog has all of these cameras and is using that to see how many people are in the park and to do surveillance in that way. So it seems like that is possibly the main purpose of the dog. Surveillance certainly seems to be on the rise around the world due to the coronavirus pandemic. So lots of questions are being raised about the privacy issues around contact tracing apps at the moment. And this week, we also reported on how some police forces in India are using surveillance drones with AI, like you describe, that can see when people are gathering in groups or breaking curfew and, and then go on to alert the police. Mm, and, uh, and the UK police has used surveillance drones too during the lockdown. The police in Derbyshire posted footage from drones, even though the people it was filming were adhering to social distancing guidelines. Yeah, all those things are, are worrying and, and bad. Um, I guess the real problem is that while it's okay to use drones and robot dogs now, you can imagine that the police will want to keep these things on in the future and then they'll be easily able to monitor protests or parties or any large gathering. Yeah, indeed. A civil liberties expert we spoke to this week told us that really uh, many police departments around the world have been looking for a good excuse to acquire drones and start using them more regularly. Yeah. So it certainly seems like the pandemic is, is providing that. But after all this, we've forgotten <laughs> that this segment is supposed to be the sci-fi alert. So which yeah. one are you going to go for here, Rowan? Yeah, there's so many different things I could pick. You know, surveillance is all over dystopian fiction from Big Brother onwards. I'm going to cheat and have two. There's a robot dog called Toby in Halo Jones, which is uh, Alan Moore's epic story from the comic 2000 AD. And I have to mention Minority Report, which is the Philip K. Dick short story made into a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, you'll remember the bit where he's trying to escape the police and cameras and face recognition catch him wherever he goes. And that's what we've already got in China and the US and other places. Time out. We want to tell you about a live online event on Monday, the 18th of May. Yep, it's called Coronavirus, Can We Trust the Science? It's a panel discussion with Naomi Oreskes, Stuart Ritchie and Graham Lawton. Naomi is a historian of science at Harvard University and the author of Merchants of Doubt. Stuart is a psychologist at King's College London. And Graham, he's a legendary staff writer at New Scientist. In the race to understand the new coronavirus outbreak, a parallel pandemic has emerged one of rumours, unverified claims and malicious falsehoods. Find out what science has done to fuel the problem and what can be done to fix it, as well as how to spot the warning signs of weak science for yourself. Visit newscientist.com events for more details and join the discussion live on Monday 18th of May. Next up, we've got a story about human-like mice, Penny. 
Yes, so this is the news that biologists have created mouse-human chimeras whose bodies were composed of up to 4% human cells. Okay, so are we talking about real live mice walking around with human cells in their body? No, not quite yet. So the team created chimeric embryos, but then they destroyed them after 17 days. But this is still in itself a big scientific advance. So for up to 4% of the cells in those embryos to be human, it is a big deal. Um, The highest that's previously been achieved in similar experiments is only around 0.1%. I guess the problem with the term chimera is you can't help but think of the, the beast from Greek mythology with the head of a lion and the body of a goat and the tail of a snake. So what is a human-animal chimera and, and why are we trying to make them? So the term chimera is applied to any living thing that has a mixture of cells of different origins. And in fact, many of us are already a sort of chimera ourselves. Uh, We may carry some cells in our bodies that aren't our own. So um, possibly from your mother or even your older siblings, uh, maybe even your grandmother. I love that idea that the generations blur within us and that they... The generations literally hang on inside you. And I remember as well a story last year of a man who'd had a bone marrow transplant and the donor's DNA turned up in his blood, which is what they wanted to happen. But also a few years later, they found the donor's DNA in his face and even in his semen. Yes, it's really mind-blowing. And and, um, also from a health perspective, we're still only really beginning to understand how these cells can actually be really beneficial. Um, It's thought that perhaps your mother's cells may actually help you out in pregnancy in in various ways. So it's a really interesting area of research. But those are all chimeras that are human cells within humans. But there are several reasons why researchers are trying to create interspecies animal-human chimeras. And in the case of this experiment, the team involved are trying to find ways to grow organs for people who need transplants and to grow those in animals. Okay, so what did they do? The team injected around 10 human stem cells into early mouse embryos, and these cells went on to get involved in all kinds of tissues as the embryos developed. They were detected as red blood cells, eye cells, liver cells. What this team did that others haven't before is that before they added these stem cells to the embryos, they treated them in a certain way that sort of took the stem cells back to a more immature state. And this uh, trick appears to have stopped the cells from triggering embryo death, which has been quite a problem in, in other studies like this. And another thing here is that the team were also allowed by their ethics committee to grow these embryos for a week longer than chimera embryos are are normally allowed to be grown. And so that gave more time for the human cells to develop within the mouse embryos. Okay, so it does get into interesting ethical territory, doesn't it? I mean, how, how human are these mice? Yeah, so the idea of mixing human cells into animal embryos is one that I think makes most of us feel a bit queasy. It does prompt questions of of what is it that makes something human? And and if there are human cells in an animal embryo, should we treat that differently to how uh, researchers would normally treat a mouse embryo, for example? One of the researchers involved in the work um, argues that it's the host embryo that really determines what animal it is. Even if some human cells end up in the brain, he argues that it's really how they're connected that makes a difference. We obviously can't grow human kidneys or livers in a tiny mouse, can we? So what's the next step? The team want to see if their method will work in a larger animal, such as a pig or sheep. Um, Their organs are much more similar in size to ours. 
the general idea would be that one day you could sort of genetically modify one of these animals so that they don't grow a liver, for example, and then the human cells could then form this organ in, inside the animal instead. So although the 4% level of human cells in these mice chimeras sounds small, it, that actually may feasibly be enough to make something like this happen. But ultimately, this still might not actually be a good source of transplant organs in itself. So a liver made that way would still contain some of the animal cells. Um, and that, that could well mean that uh, the organ wouldn't be suitable for transplant into a human. So one of the lines of thinking is that that's just another step towards uh, taking this even further and finding uh, even more sophisticated ways to grow organs outside of bodies, uh, possibly in some kind of incubator. Right. So we're still quite a long way from the goal here. Yeah, it, it's interesting research and, and many research groups are working in this field. Um, but I do wonder if it might end up being superseded by other ways of, of making transplant organs. Uh, so there's a bit of a race going on to see if lab-based tissue engineering can get good enough to provide organs instead. And um, I know certainly if it became possible to, for example, 3D print a new liver or heart out of human cells and, and maybe even out of your own cells that are made from your own stem cells, that would definitely get around some of the yuckiness factor that a lot of people have about growing organs in chimeric animals. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we celebrate an organism we're feeling the love for, Rowan. Yes, today it's swifts, which I've just started seeing this week. Have you seen any yet, Penny? No, I'm really sore about this. I think um, coronavirus might mean this is a year that I just don't see swifts, which is mm. a real shame. But yes, I have heard that they've just arrived back in the UK from Africa, where they spend the winter. They're so beautifully adapted to the air. And, and really, for me, I love when I can, hearing them just sort of screeching overhead. It's always one of the signifiers that, that summer's basically here. So let's hear what they sound like. You may well have heard some of the screeching and calling in, in streets near you recently. Absolutely wonderful birds. Their, yeah, their habitat is the air. After they fledge, after they leave the nest as young birds, they don't land again for maybe a year or more until they themselves start a family. And what's really cute is before they fledge, the young birds do little press-ups in the nest to strengthen <laughs> their wings um, because after they take their first flight, that's it. They're on their own and they don't land again, as you say, for ages. I love that they are African birds, really. They spend nine months of the year either in Africa or travelling uh, to or from uh, that continent and only three months in Europe. The other fact that's often mentioned about Swifts is that they sleep on the wing. Yeah, uh, there's a great story about a French pilot in the First World War who was flying behind enemy lines with the engine off and at about three and a half thousand metres, he found himself amongst apparently motionless birds and he managed to catch one and uh, later it was found to be an adult male Swift. Uh, and since then, scientists have fitted birds with trackers and found that they sleep at this really high altitude. Yeah, it's a really safe place to be because obviously no land predators can get them and, and few other bird predators make it up that way. We do have to mention that swifts are in a bit of trouble. Uh, the breeding population in the UK has gone down a lot in the last 20 years, mainly because their nest sites in old buildings have been demolished. Still look up and marvel next time you're out and next time you're getting your lockdown exercise. 
Now we turn to a plant that grows up to half a metre a day and has many people excited that it could play a part in solving global food shortages and tackling climate change. But it's not a tree, which is what we normally talk about when we talk about fighting climate change. Yeah, that's right. It's kelp, uh, the giant seaweed. You've probably seen it at the seaside. It's the thick, rubbery brown seaweed that grows along many temperate parts of the coast around the world. And it's the dominant plant in many coastal ecosystems. And it's an important ingredient used to make the stock for miso soup. But what we didn't appreciate until recently was that a lot of the carbon content of kelp drifts down to the seabed when the plant dies and becomes locked up in sediment. And in this way, an estimated 173 million tonnes of carbon are removed from the atmosphere each year. That's really impressive. But how does that weigh up with how much carbon we've been putting into the atmosphere? Yeah, um, we've been obviously putting a lot in. Uh, in 2018, we put 32 billion tonnes in. And since the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio, uh, that was when everyone seemingly started getting serious about the environment. Since then, we've put 765 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the sky. Yeesh. So how on earth is kelp going to help us with that? So one idea is that we deliberately farm kelp on a massive scale. You could build large frames and suspend them underwater and plant them with kelp. The seaweed will help de-acidify the water. It will encourage the growth of shellfish, promotes biodiversity and can be turned into a biogas and burned. And if it was done on a big enough scale, it could draw down many billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. And proponents also say it could sustainably produce large amounts of seafood to help feed a growing population. I know that of the carbon emission scenarios used by climate scientists to uh, simulate possible futures, only one of those keeps global temperatures from rising more than two degrees Celsius. It, it achieves this by drawing down carbon dioxide and burying it underground or locking it up in trees or, or making it into biofuel and then catching and burying the carbon dioxide from that. But you're saying we could also do this with the help of kelp. Yeah, that's the idea. I, I do love this idea. Seaweed farming is much more low maintenance than land agriculture. Uh, and while, of course, we'd have to find space to grow the kelp, it's not as much of an issue as it is to find land to grow trees. Are you two uh, seaweed lovers, Val? Well, you're definitely winning me around with your arguments, Rowan. Um, I, I like that point you mentioned about uh, how kelp could um, help to remove acid from the oceans as well, because that's a, a really important problem too, isn't it? Yeah, massive problem that we don't really talk about as much when we're thinking about global warming. Penny, do you like I, seaweed? Yeah, I have to say I have a soft spot for all seaweeds. Um, some of my first proper field training as a biologist was a very wet week in Wales, um, getting to know seaweed very well. Uh -huh. And of course, I love it in all the various different ways it's used in Japanese cuisine. Yeah, well, we actually use seaweed a lot in the West, usually without knowing it. It's a thickener in sauces and yogurts. It's a common ingredient in many cosmetics and toothpastes as well. But to make the most of it, we need to really scale up the growth of it. We need a, a marine permaculture, so we need marine seaweed farms. A paper out last year showed the potential for seaweed farming, suggesting we could get 364 million tonnes of animal protein, mainly in the form of fish and shellfish, each year from marine farms. This is more than two-thirds the amount needed to feed the 9 billion people who will be alive in 2050, and seaweed could be crucial to achieving this. And another study last year estimated that 48 million square kilometres of the ocean could be devoted to seaweed farming, and that would provide benefits to 77 countries. 
It sounds brilliant, but it is also starting to sound a little too good to be true. Yeah, uh, there is a lot we don't know. We don't know how hard it's going to be to farm kelp on such a big scale. And we don't know what kind of disruption this would have on the nitrogen cycle or on the deep ocean if you start to dump a huge amount of stuff down there. So there's a lot that needs to be worked out, but I think it's super promising. And there's also this idea that we could feed seaweed to livestock as well. Yeah, so one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gases is livestock farming because cows burp out large amounts of methane, which is a more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And we farm hundreds of millions of cows around the world. But if certain kinds of seaweed are fed to cows, it reduces the amount of methane burped out. I also know that kelp forests worldwide are actually declining as as waters get too warm for them. So how does this problem affect the plan? Yeah, in California, the decline of kelp forest is a massive problem there. Uh, Well, it just adds urgency to what's already a really urgent problem. Data from NASA shows that the April just gone was the warmest April on record globally, coming in at 1.16 degrees C above the 1951 to 1980 average. And we talk a lot about keeping warming to 1.5 degrees. But if you compare this April just gone to the pre-industrial April average, it was 1.55 degrees warmer. So we're already seeing 1.5 degrees of warming in extremely warm months. So we have to get on this. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Valerie Jameson. And thank you to you for listening. Do tell your friends about our show. Remember, you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com and there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20. Yes, POD20 at checkout gives you your subscription discount. Do also listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview. Just up there now is a fascinating conversation with novelist Philip Pullman. Do get in touch on Twitter at newscientistpod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. New episodes go live each Friday subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts until next time take care goodbye bye this is a right angles production you can find out more by visiting rightangles.global